Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. We are live on WNUR 89.3 FM Evanston, Chicago. I'm your host, Weston Williams, joined this week by creative consultant Oliver Camacho and co-host Matt Cummings. All right, tonight, Matt has a brand new member to induct into the hallowed corridors of the Opera Box Score Hall of Fame in honor of Black History Month. We'll find out who needs to start working on that acceptance speech. But first, we go inside the huddle with countertenor Jordan Rutter, who's currently performing in Chicago Opera Theater's new production of The Scarlet Ibis. We'll ask him what it's like for a singer from Florida to perform in the middle of a brutal Chicago winter. Plus, in the two-minute drill, you get our hot takes on everything you need to know from the past week in opera land. And, of course, you can call us on air and get your voice heard. 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. Give us your hot take on the latest uh, latest opera news stories. 847-866-9687. Or tweet us at Opera Box Score. Or post on our Facebook page. Just a myriad of ways to connect with us. And speaking of connection, I'm feeling one right now with Matt Cummings. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing all right. I'm not stuck back in the corner like I normally am when I'm in the studio. <laughs> yeah, you're in the, 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 the big chair now. And we also have in the studio, of course, Oliver Camacho. How's it going? It's going fine, but we have a big show today. We and do. so we need to get right down to business. But before we do, I have to tell our audience that I did not creatively consult last week's episode. <laughs> so if there was a conversation that went off the rails about transgender singers and Falk, I do not accept responsibility for that. And I, but I am, I am apologizing to you on behalf of the show. That yes, was it was a, it was a little bit off the rails, as you yeah. said, and we do try our best here, but sometimes we yeah, don't that, quite hit the actually, mark. You guys made a case for inclusion in opera podcasting. So, Yes, that is definitely. Please, we need we need more inclusion. Back compliments, I guess. Yeah, you call that. but I, it, it's it is part of the reason that uh, we really do need more voices represented, or else you have a bunch of uh, uh, straight cis men cis just messing everything up. That, that. That's that's uh, that's us. And on that note, welcome to Opera Box Score. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna uh, we're gonna be uh, kicking things off in just a little bit, but let me just first say my sport because we always talk about sports at the beginning of these. My sport this weekend was competitive car skiing because I spun all the way out on those icy roads. It was a real mess. Real life Mario Kart is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think that's about all the sports we have because there's no other sports happening right now. It's we're in the dead zone. Wouldn't you agree with that? I Oliver? would. Let, let's math. take it. Let's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> close enough. Uh, Why don't well, we take a listen to some music? Let's listen to some music. We don't need to talk about this. Let's move on to some opera. So this is. Um, uh, well, well, we'll tell you in just a second. 
Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. What gives our bodies so much joy? Has it added instead to so much pain? And acts occurring naturally. That was uh, Jordan Rudder. He is a New York-based countertenor who has made a name for himself performing new works, including Robert Patterson's opera Three-Way, which we just heard a clip of, and the chamber cantata Lay By by Edgar David Grana. His latest premiere is right here in the Windy City with Chicago Opera Theater's production of Stefan Weissman's and David Cody's opera The Scarlet Ibis, which has two remaining performances on the 21st and 24th. Jordan, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. And so uh, you you, ha- uh, you have a certainly a uh, an interesting sort of CV for a countertenor. You have uh, you seem to lean towards new works rather than a lot of the older stuff that uh, countertenors are more associated with. Yeah, I um, I kind of fell into it. Um, I I got to know a bunch of composers, and they uh, they learned that I like doing this kind of work that you know uh, how to read music yeah yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and cra- crazy rhythms <laughs> yeah. yeah and and I, it, it it's interesting to me and and it's um and and it, and being able to bring that level of commitment i think is something yeah. that composers are well just for. just to yeah. flesh out a little bit of the weirdness of your cv um besides <laughs> scarlet ibis and the other projects that um weston mentioned you also are part of that uh, art installation at the Met that we talked about, I think, last year or two years ago, uh, Sonic Blossom with yeah. Lee Mingwei, where you basically sang Schubert songs at people <laughs> who were just trying to look at some art. <laughs> was there a piano for that? There was a piano track. Okay. Uh-huh. So awesome. you, would, yeah. you would walk people to a chair and then sit them down and stand about 10 feet away, um, play Something on an iPod and yeah. sing at them. That sounds really sexy. Uh, then you also did the cabaret songs of William Bolcom, was a friend of the show for Opera Mission. Mm-hmm. And um, what else was this other project that I read about? Oh, this um, three-way opera we just heard about, um, which is like three one acts, like sexy one acts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's kind of yeah. They they marketed it kind of like Il Tritico, but you know, as if they were rom coms. Oh, and you also did a off-Broadway play by a uh, uh, Lot Vekman. Vekman, yeah. Uh-huh. and you were like singing Strauss songs, like in the middle of the play. Like, yeah, like, it was um, basically it was an incidental music between okay. acts. I did uh, Morgan, um, the Abarmadish from Saint Matt, or yeah, Saint yeah, Saint Matthew. Yeah. <laughs> so when and, are you just gonna like? get into a Julius Caesar production and just sing Ptolemy like I don't know when somebody <laughs> hires me to do it <laughs> I, I I love singing Handel actually um, but just the circles that I roll in in New York uh, have always been new music so so young young countertenors might start looking up to you because after they see Scarlet Ibis and after you become associated with this role People are going to say, "What? Well, what did he do earlier?" You know, <laughs> and would you say that, like, you know, you've just been kind of sc- scrapping together, like, work with doing all these like side things that are not necessarily like mainstream opera, or were they things that you deliberately chose because they they appealed more to your sensibility? 
I think uh, it's certainly not that I have so many jobs that I can <laughs> only choose the ones that we're not there yet, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as nice as that would be. Um, but, you know, you hang out in a city long enough. People get to know who you are. And your name gets passed around when someone says, mm -hmm. I need a countertenor who is creative and is game to, to try something a little off the wall. Hmm. And, and so I... I will get the phone calls or the emails when hmm. somebody wants to hmm. do something funny. Nice. <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering if you, if you can tell us a little bit more about what it's like to be working on the Scarlet Ibis, and in in terms, especially in terms of what it's like to be, you know, one of the one uh, so early on in the in the stage of a work like this, and mm -hmm. be potentially becoming identified with a role that is possibly going to become one of the benchmark hallmark roles for countertenor voice. Does, wh how, how does that affect your the way you you work on it? Uh, how does it no affect pressure your experience? Yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. I, I mean, I, I hope that this piece does become a a major role in the repertoire because it's it's really beautiful and and it's theatrical in a way that not not all pieces are. You know. Um, well, let's hold on to your responses. Yeah. Let's just put a pin in it. Sure. I saw this on Saturday. And I didn't do that much research ahead of time because I'm I'm too lazy. I just want to go to the show and like just like experience it. And I have to say, like you all know me, I don't like new music. I have a very small brain, and if I don't true, understand what's true. happening, I tend to tune out. This opera is so easy to to engage with. Uh, its themes are so universal. The music is very transparent and tonal, mm. and there are really great set pieces. And there's an aria for uh, the role that Jordan plays. Uh, the character's called Doodle. Uh, is it called If I Had Wings? or something? I Have Wings. I Have Wings, yeah. Area, yeah. And I promise you, I Have Wings will become standard aria, top five aria for countertenor, just the way that dove mm. flight aria is and X number of handle arias. So you're the new Oberon, basically. This, <laughs> I promise you, we are gonna, when, you start, when you're old enough to like sit on judges' panels, you're going to hear the F out of this aria. So, Okay, go on. <laughs> <laughs> so in in terms of Scarlet Ibis, obviously uh -huh. it's a new role. It's uh, on a relatively, I think it's fair to say, a relatively large uh, sort of a prominent stage for a, a new opera. Um, do you ever, do you feel that that affects how you prepare for the role or do you just approach it as you would anything else, any of the, uh, the weird side projects that you do yeah. or any of the sort of more to main, mainstream stuff? Well, the question is always, regardless of what what you're singing, how do you what how do you respond to the music? What interpretation is going to read to people, and where's the composer coming from? Mm. So the the thing about the Scarlet Ibis that immediately jumped out to me when I saw the or when I when I heard the music from the first production in New York was how assertively beautiful this score is, and and these things are written into the vocal lines, right? The the Eye of Wings aria has all of these ascending six that leap and mm. and there's all all of this stuff that's constructed to make it I love it when you talk intervals. <laughs> <laughs> um to make it seem as if it's taking off. And and when you are picking a score apart, it's just the same as interpreting what the what the staccato notes in uh Donana Zach two aria mm. are. You know, it you have to you have to make decisions, and even though it's a little bit subjective, there is still a right approach and a wrong yeah, one. Yeah, but you, you know? have the composer at your access and the librettist. Did you 
talk to them at all about you know some of their intentions. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah I I um I know David pretty well actually. Um, he was also it's like the second show you've done with him. I yeah, think. he was the librettist for Three Way. Okay. Um, oh yes. And I I did sit down with Stefan, but I think when it comes to music, it's it's a collaborative process, right? Mm-hmm. So absolutely, I'm gonna ask the composer and librettist what they what their opinions on the piece are, but it's also my responsibility to to bring my own voice to it because these these things don't exist. Or as Matt would say, to do the work. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Tie in. <laughs> well, do you ever find yourself sort of um, uh, at odds, especially with the new work when you have the composer there? And do you ever disagree on what what a piece or a uh, a character should be, um, or do you just find it a, a more smooth, you know, collaboration? Or do you ever have a, a differing opinion, essentially? Well, it, it, I haven't encountered that situation yet. Um, He's not a diva yet. That's what not I'm yet. Saying. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. You'll get there. You'll I'm, get I'm there. I'm still humble. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, to me, the, this kind of work is like, it's more like trying to solve a puzzle, trying to find out how can I represent everyone's vision, including my own, of course, in a way that is going to be true. Hmm. And, and if I have to say, you know what, that really doesn't make sense to me, so I'm going to do it my way, then I'm, I'm not doing my job. The sure. Best of my well, we were actually talking on the way up here about how this role originally was for a slightly higher voice type than yeah. yours. So Stefan agreed to uh, transpose some of the hmm. melodic lines for you, or he to... um, he put in osias. Okay. So there, um, when you come see the show, there's these moments that are are very high drama, and I sing high notes in them, and I'm uh, doing a essentially like a a shocked. exclamation um and they were (laughs) they were you know a third or fourth higher because um the original doodle eric brenner could really pop out a b flat yeah like nobody's business and um (laughs) that's not my gift so (laughs) so, you know so stefan and i um when we met went through the score and and just had a discussion about where in osea might be appropriate yeah well that's actually interesting because the first production of this was that prototype and uh, Eric Brenner um, basically did not act the role. There was like a puppet. Is that my understanding? He, he did act the role. Okay. Because I, 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 I've seen a few videos of this. I didn't see the whole thing um, personally because it was right after I moved to New York. Um, but as far as I could tell, it was like Steph, uh, Eric played, and I'm sorry if I'm, <laughs> if I'm misrepresenting this, but as far as I can tell, Eric was like who Doodle would have grown up to be okay and the mm. puppet was who doodle literally was this tiny call um, baby yeah. yeah exactly did you take any of that infor- inspiration into into the way you interpreted the role i honestly i had such a strong response to this material when i saw it um i i had my own ideas well let's, <laughs> I mean, the thing yeah. that's actually that we're hopefully we'll have time to talk about that's gonna be distinct about jordan's performance is how physical the role is mm-hmm. like how you really have to go through a metamorphosis on stage, you know? Could you uh, could you elaborate on that all? Well, over? it's uh, like he's supposed to be crippled. Oh, it's not that, that's not the right word. No, we don't not. use that word. We're doing not. differently abled. Yeah, differently abled. You'll be doing the redaction yeah. at the beginning of the next episode. <laughs> yeah. uh, and he's very young. And uh, his brother, who, by the way, is played by Annie Rosen, and it's a tour de force. It's incredible. Um, yeah, she's amazing. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, so you you know you we watch um, Doodle 
basically grow up uh, in this show. Mm-hmm. And so you have to have a lot of different, you know, body postures mm-hmm. and not everything is conducive to good singing and you're sitting a lot and you're hunched over a lot. And uh, yeah, it's like I, I could see why you would want to have a puppet on stage, you know, doing all that stuff yeah. so that you could sing it, you know? It certainly solved a lot of having a puppet um, made certain angles easier. Like there's, um, there's a scene right in the middle titled Learning to Walk. And as you can probably imagine, mm-hmm. <laughs> singing, singing that scene is, I'm sure, simpler mm-hmm. when you aren't simultaneously acting yeah. like you're learning how to walk. It, it was, um, there was a lot of having to isolate groups of muscles and figure mm-hmm. out, okay, now I'm going to do this with this part of my body and that with this part. Yeah. And, and it was like learning the score over again, in a way. So you, you, uh, you learned the score uh, a, in sort of two different stages then? Uh, it, it, so it wasn't a, a continuous process for you? Oh, well, I mean, I learned the music. Right. And, and right. I, I anticipated having to... I mean, I knew that it was going to be very physically involved. Sure. But I, once we got into the rehearsal room, it became clear that I was really going to have to... <laughs> do this here and do that there. I think a lot of us who have, have worked on like stylized productions mm-hmm. and sure. thought we arrived at the show like, oh, I know this music really well. And then suddenly the director wants you to like do like very time movement and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Suddenly you're like, oh my God, I guess I don't know the music that well anymore. I actually found it was easier to sing once. Yeah, because yeah, you, you're you forced to yeah. loosen up your body a little bit and, and it doesn't really, like you don't have that same opportunity to, to tighten up. Mm-hmm. And um and so I actually found it very liberating and a lot of fun. So, so in just a few minutes we have left here, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about why you're not singing a lot of early music right now, which would seem like the obvious thing, <laughs> the obvious path for you to go. And like, I thought, well, I was thinking maybe he just doesn't care for the stories of some of these formulaic broke operas. But you had a different response to me. You want to yeah. tell me about that? I, I actually, I, I love early music. Um, and, you know, I'm saying early music, I'm including the Baroque stuff too, and some reform opera. Um, I think it's important to delineate between the kind of acting that you see every day, which is like rooted in the method and 20th century um, Mm. acting techniques, and what was more like the idiom of the pieces when they were written, which would be closer to Shakespeare. That's how I, that's how I've, internalized it or understood especially it. the high broke stuff yeah. yeah yeah it's it's rhetorical it's all gestural and thinking about the point that you're trying to communicate and so it of course it doesn't make sense to try and beat out actions based on different words because you're repeating the same words. yeah <laughs> <laughs> so do you find that it that that it, that just sort of uh, uh artistically an anathema to you to like put in the psychological work for the older pieces uh is uh, or is it more that you find it more difficult to be more uh presentational in your style um well i i it comes sort of naturally to me in in the sense of like you you do the gestures in a way to communicate the point you're trying to make. Sure. And, it, and it's fairly straightforward, really, if you know what to do. Um, and it becomes about rhetoric. And, I, and that word rhetoric is the key word for me with this stuff. It's the craft that you bring to the presentation that makes it compelling. 
And the music is so rhetorical, too. Yeah, so. exactly. And all the little flourishes, all mm-hmm. the little ornamentations. A lot of the... A lot of the emotional work is right there for you, especially if you're doing something like Handel. I mean, Handel just puts it all out there. Um, and And your job, then, is to communicate the ideas and make them beautiful and the miracle with this kind of rep is that the the emotional truth comes through anyway mm. but it's not quite so hands-on as doing say method acting that you might do in a contemporary piece or a 20th century piece something like the scarlet ibis uh perhaps <laughs> yeah. um a little bit i i did i did do that as part of my process um but as we've kind of hinted at, um, when you come see the show, there is quite a bit of gesture, and it, there's it's really pretty economical. Um, so I was glad to have done the work, but yeah. <laughs> just in like the thirty seconds we have left, left, um, seeing that you have like this very unusual path to your career, and maybe now this is your big break. What are some projects you'd like to work on? Maybe if they're not even on the docket, mm-hmm. but like things that you envision yourself in as the very unique type of singing actor, countertenor that you are. I, I would love to do more art song, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I'm always talking with composers about art songs. and um, It's a big business. It's it people is, are like yeah. rolling in money. We're doing uh, it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's almost as with, much as the podcasting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm kind of a poetry nerd. And, um, and, and I think art song has can tell a really great breadth of stories in a way that opera, it, it's a little more unwieldy, mm-hmm. you know? Mm. So I, I would love to do more recitals. I always have programs swimming in the back of my head. Um, mm. And it just depends on the resources or the opportunities that open up for me. Well, in the meantime, Jordan Rudder will be performing the role of Doodle in Chicago Opera Theater's production of The Scarlet Ibis. There are two performances left, the 21st and the 24th. You can get your tickets at Chicago Opera Theater, that's with an E-R, dot org. It's February, and that means it's Black History Month in the United States. Our very own Matt Cummings has prepared a very special Hall of Fame segment to confer what is, without a doubt, the highest opera box score honor has to offer, uh, which isn't saying much, but, you know, we do what we can here. That's just around the corner on America's talk radio show about opera on WNUR 89.3 FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear-a-hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic 
yet humble salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. That was a lovely little clip. Uh, Matt, what was what was that? So that was the card aria from uh, Act 3 of Carmen. Uh, that it, And we are listening to a little bit of my absolute, possibly my absolute favorite singer of all time today, which is the mezzo-soprano Shirley Verrett. Oh, and nice. I, I asked a couple weeks ago if I could do a segment about Shirley Verrett because... Uh, Black History Month has not gotten off to a great start in the United States, but with um, <laughs> the entire state of Virginia, <laughs> as it is. Uh, and she is important not only because of the trails she blazed musically, but because she uh, is kind of overlooked as sort of a civil rights icon. And I think that mm. that, that is some attention that, that she deserves. Uh, so just a little bit of bio. She was born in uh, in a highly religious family in New Orleans in 1931, but mostly raised out in California. Uh, she actually didn't pursue music first. She was working as a real estate agent and realized that she was so bored selling houses that she had to follow her passions against the wishes of her family and go into podcasting. Opera. Yeah, <laughs> more specifically, opera podcasting. Uh, and to me, she's like one of the absolute original Mavericks because she did everything. She she did everything. She sang. Uh, she sang roles that were mezzo soprano. She sang roles that were dramatic soprano. She sang roles that were dramatic coloratura soprano. Really, anything that she felt fit her voice, she decided to to put on. Uh, and it, it's a spicy voice. It's passionate. It's versatile. But it always <laughs> remains human. Uh, and. Uh, she is fairly well recorded in some respects because for a while she had an exclusive contract with RCA, which was one of the really big record labels. Sure. Uh, and she was an RCA artist along with Leontine Price and Anna Moffo and uh, Montserrat Caballé. Uh, and they're actually the RCA recording of um, Unbalo and Mascara has uh, Verrett, Price, and Riri Grist, three principal African-American singers in the ty- in the leading roles, which in the 60s was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, one one studio recording that we don't have of hers is Carmen, and that's because RCA had already recorded it with Leontine Price, and when they wouldn't do it with her, she decided to leave the label. Um, oh, wow. And, and that means, <laughs> and she did work as, she worked as a free st- uh, freelance recording artist, but that means that uh, one of the other portrayals of hers, which is just absolutely stunning, that exists only in this weird YouTube video from somewhere in Europe, I want to say Belgium. Uh, so <laughs> they're, they're already looking at me because they know what's coming up, is her Mneris. There's no studio oh, recording, yeah. there's no complete recording of her Mneris. Uh, and let, let's listen to a little bit of a clip of the judgment scene because it is absolutely volcanic. It's, it's one of the best things on the internet.
So during that entire clip, I was waiting for uh, Matt to give me the signal to fade it out, and he just like, no, just a little bit more, one more, one more. more. I I put together like a three and a half minute clip of this judgment (laughs) scene because I couldn't cut it down anymore, and I I had to make some tough choices just now. Uh, I I just want to put a pin in this for a second because you made me think of something, and maybe this is like the inherent racism that we're not even acknowledging. Madam Butterfly was recorded in RCA with... Lansing Price and also on Amafo, they made two. They made like a light butterfly and a heavy yeah. butterfly. So but how come is that a double standard? You know that they recorded the same work twice in the same was it the same decade? Probably you know. I hmm. it, it very well could be, and I and I think there, there's kind of a there, there is sort of a uh, a refrain that comes through. That I think they were mostly worried about, and and actually Shirley Verrett talks in her memoir, which is called "I Never Walked Alone." And I was I was reading some of it to, to research for the segment, and it's fascinating because she's very candid, much more <laughs> candid than people usually are in these singer biographies. But she part of the reason um, that that she was put into this rivalry with Grace Bumbry, another African American dr- dramatic mezzo soprano around the same time, was because they were both really worried that they that the opera world wasn't going to let there be too big African American mezzo sopranos. Mm. And I I think that they're they're could be something to that, or the fact that they didn't want. I, I think that the main that RCA didn't want the the Leontine Price Carmen to suffer by putting yeah. out another one yeah. with, with you know that would have been seen as being in the same vein, and that's really all of our loss. Yeah, then Grace mm-hmm. Bumbry got the Amneris yeah. on the RCA with Leontine Price. Exactly. So. Uh, and what you can hear in that is it, it's a complex portrayal, and it really shines in the video. It's like totally over the top acting. But but you can hear that just like volcano of emotions. <laughs> it, it's her voice is like a waterfall. It really hits you right in the right yeah, in but, the old chest. But she also she just wasn't afraid with like if her voice was gonna break. Like no, she just went for everything. And more often than not, it did not break. It she had all the technique to back up her dramatic expression, which is sometimes shocking to hear. Yeah. Like she's going for it in that way. And it, she gets it. It's and like, it's not the most uniform voice in the yeah. whole world, but she, but it, it does exactly what she tells it to. And we're going yeah. to hear that a lot in the clip that I picked for next, which <laughs> okay. is uh, from the Claudio Abado recording of Macbeth that she made in the mid-70s. And this is a, a portion of the sleepwalking scene. And so Lady Macbeth is maybe her most iconic role. It was, it, it, you know, it came about 15 years into her career. But uh, there's a really famous production of it that, from La Scala uh, that's on YouTube that was like one of her absolute crowning moments. Uh, and she talks about it in her memoir and it, and it gets about four pages just talking about how she got inside the character and tried to bring out the Shakespearean drama. And 
frankly, I've never heard a recording that sounds better than that. There are so many terrible recordings of Lady Macbeth out there because it is such a, it's a sing and a half and no one really knows if it's a mezzo roll or if it's a soprano roll and it has like more than a two octave range and you have to do runs and you have to do leaps and you have to do high quiet notes and you have to do loud high notes and it's just everywhere and she does all of it better than anyone else. Uh, and what, but what uh, what attracts me in that clip is her flexibility of phrasing and the way she's able to turn her tone in on a dime, uh, right. to mm-hmm. as, and especially since it's a scene about sleepwalking and about mm-hmm. going crazy, it's really effective. Yeah, uh, and that's partially I think that 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 just shows how much of a daredevil and a maverick she was. She was a uh, both as a singer and as an artist, she tackled whatever role she wanted to, uh, including it, it at the Metropolitan <laughs> Opera when she sang both Cassandra and Dido. <laughs> in a performance of Les Troyens, the uh, the Trojans, uh, which it. is about a five and a half act, a five and a half hour long opera, uh, and that means that she was on stage for almost the entire time. No one does that. Ab- absolutely, not no on one purpose. Does that. They don't yeah. do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and she could sing these big heroic things, like you've heard, but also she could war- She could make her voice really warm and become like this. Uh, the have this really sultry. Uh, sultry tone like when she played uh, Delilah and be- mm. and that's because she's a storyteller and let's listen to a little bit of her clip of Mon Coeur Sous Votre Voix It just, just the way that she goes all the way up to the top with that full voice and then pair, scales it back for the for the repeat in that in that last phrase of it. I, I and I've never heard such a such a sexy descending chromatic. She scale. does the same thing in the Veil song yeah. in Don Carlo, and I, Ooh, I, I, yeah. I know that's probably not one of your clips, but I tried really hard to find room for it, but yeah. I already have about fifteen <laughs> clips of her. Not an exaggeration, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and that. that uh, and you should listen to both all of the Veil vale song and all of Odon Fatale because once the, it's another role that I, I don't think there are many people out there who sing it better than Shirley Verrett. Um, and one one uh, recording of hers that I really fell in love with was the one that she the uh, Anna Bolena that she made with uh, with Beverly Sills. Beverly Sills and Julius Rudell conducting, uh, and where she plays Jane Seymour, and she played a lot of those second well, second lady roles in mm. uh, in bel canto operas. Uh, and I think it's because the tessitura was really friendly to her. It was generally a little bit a little bit lower than the than the leading lady, but also a little bit higher and showier than most mezzo soprano roles or like really contralto roles. And I there's this one clip of the the end of the Jane the big Jane Seymour aria where she's confessing to to Henry that that she feels terrible about what she's doing to to Anna Bolena. 
And uh, I just the way that she holds out the penultimate note in this at the end of this clip is so exciting. And even if it's a little bit indulgent, I just do not care. (laughs) (laughs) Well, shall we indulge you with another clip? Here we go. It just lasts for like one split second more than you think it's going to. And then that portamento down to the final note is, it's just so it, that's the reason why Belcanto like makes my blood pump because it can be so formulaic. But when you have someone there who can just like turn the dial a little bit and bend time and and bring you with her, it, it works. It, it just, it does. Yeah. It's um, not Mozart, everybody. No. Like, yeah, you got to sing it. Yeah. <laughs> and that boldness, to make a, a really um, touching segue, that boldness is not just, she didn't save it for the stage. She was outspoken in her life almost to a fault. Uh, and her initial career as, a, as an African-American mezzo-soprano coming of age in the late 50s uh, was obviously limited due to segregation. But she uh, refused to put herself in situations where she felt disrespected and she stood up for herself when she did feel disrespected. She, uh, when she was singing in the South, she would not uh, go to any accommodations that were segregated venues. Hmm. Uh, she wouldn't perform for people who were going to have segregated audiences. She refused to sing in apartheid South Africa, even though they, uh, they, they offered her a very lucrative concert deal to kind of come and show people that maybe it wasn't as bad as people were saying. <laughs> but, but she, you know, she stood by her principles. She stood up for herself and uh, really... Um, gave a really frank interview t- about all the bigotry that she faced in in the opera world uh, to Opera News in 1976, which is you know most of uh, plenty of people in their school are like okay Civil Rights Act in 1965 and that ended racism, uh, but she <laughs> was still you know she was still out there talking about this when people didn't necessarily want to hear it, uh, and that op- that interview in, in Opera News came from came came on the heels of a performance uh, at the Metropolitan Opera in. Uh, a revival of uh, La Sedio di Corinto, the the Siege of Corinth, and uh, that was the, the opera that Beverly Sills premiered at the Met. And but uh, a lot of the press for it made it sound like Shirley Verrett stole the show because of the end of this aria. And this is going to be clip number eight on my list. Got to scroll down for that one. Yeah, <laughs> here we go. Yeah. 
And I kept a little bit of the ovation yeah. on that clip because apparently it went on for over two minutes after no, she was done. That Capoletta is relentless and she did not take a break. There's yeah. options there where you could just like, I'm going to sit this measure out. Yeah. She kept going. She added those high notes. She had a trill. There was articulation in the coloratura. It's like, what is going on? And it's not often that you get someone with that much voice yeah. who can move yeah. it that fast. Yeah. Uh, and that just speaks to her incredible versatility. Uh, and I actually want to end with a quote of that, she, one that she wrote at the end, of, uh, a quote that she put at the end of her book, which is she says, my legacy, as far as I'm concerned, may be that I've always been more versatile than uh, many other singers. I came up with it before I read that, but it's still true. Uh, <laughs> my career would have been a lot easier if I had followed only this path or that path, but I couldn't. I did it my way. You can't be perfect. You can only do what you can do. And then you let it rest. And so if we can have her take us home with a little bit with a little clip of her singing uh, You'll Never Walk Alone from the revival of Carousel that she did on Broadway, because honestly, what couldn't this woman do? <laughs> when you walk through a storm, keep your chin up high And don't be afraid of the dark At the end of the storm is a golden sky and the sweet silver song of From Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill. Plus, our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendanten Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know that happened in Opera Land over the past week. 
Later this week, soprano Jesse Norman will receive the 12th Glenn Gould Prize, a biennial honor previously bestowed upon artists such as Philip Glass, Yo-Yo Ma, and Pierre Boulez for, quote, a unique lifetime contribution that has enriched the human condition through the arts. Countertenor Anthony Roth Costanzo describes what it's like to be shaved, waxed, and naked in front of thousands of fully clothed opera goers at the London Coliseum in an article he has penned for The Guardian. Well, that's one way to get Oliver's attention. A link to Costanzo's Behold the Naked Pharaoh singing Philip Glass's Akhenaten will be on our website. Nina Stemma is skillfully profiled by Hannah de Priest in Schmopera. In the interview, Stemma extols the virtue of singing Mozart to secure vocal technique, the importance of saying no for the sake of longevity, and even delves into awareness of the mental health, mental health issues for singers. In commemoration of Black History Month, L.A. Opera draws our attention to seven black opera singers who are currently dominating the game. L.A. Opera's roundup lists Janae Bridges, Russell Thomas, Larry Brownlee, Pretty Yenda, John Holliday, Morris Robinson, and friend of the show, Janai Brugger. An unfortunate headline is giving disproportionate publicity to a young artist at Opera Colorado. The title in, <laughs> of the article is, Can This Local Singer Overcome Over-Darkened Vowels to Perform with the Met? <laughs> of course, McConnell will compete this weekend at the Met Consul, uh, Council Auditions, and the only real thing preventing him from winning are the other 49 singers in the contest. And we're pulling for you, Eric. Musicians of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra are scheduled to go on strike if negotiations with management do not reach an agreement. The chair of the negotiating committee, committee, pardon me, Stephen Lester, says that over the past decade, the musicians have seen their compensation and benefits stagnate while their schedules increased and working conditions deteriorated. A teaser trailer for the upcoming Luciano Pavarotti biopic was unveiled at the Grammy Awards broadcast last Sunday. Ron Howard's new documentary, which details the highs and lows of the world's most recognizable tenor up to his final performance at the 2006 Winter Olympics, is slated for release in June. The Sydney Opera House is arguably one of the most iconic theater exteriors in the world. An article from Budget Direct Australia has released renders of a few of the alternative designs that lost out to the design that graces the harbor today, and some of those designs are not great. You absolutely need to check out these pictures. The link will be on our website. On the disabled list in Germany, Matt Gabor's new production of Verdi's Otello failed to open last night because although Di Toro singing Otello and Raffaella Lintel as Desdemona both called in sick and the town had no substitutes. And on this day, February 18th, we celebrate the anniversary of the birth of Belgian mezzo Rita Gore and the first performances of Handel's Oratory of Samson at Covent Garden in 1743, Berlioz's opera The Damnation of Faust in Monte Carlo in 1893, and Minotti's comic opera The Telephone in New York City in 1947, if you're into that sort of thing. That is your two-minute drill. Opera class. Sports radio crass. This is opera box score. And of course you can call us on air and get your voice heard 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. We want to hear your opinion on what we're talking about tonight. 847-866-9687 or you can tweet us at Opera Box Score and man, what a week in Opera Land. That was a lot to read, folks. So what we didn't say (laughs) is that uh, Jordan is actually still in the studio with us. He is, he Uh, is. He wants to stay and play, but I'll turn it over to Matt. To, for your first reaction to one of these stories, and we'll, we'll turn one over to Jordan. So. I mean, to just keep variations on my theme for this evening <laughs> is that Jesse Norman is an institution. She is. And uh, she tends to get a lot of flack because she, you know, she's very idiosyncratic. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but she's also very memorable. She's, and she's, she has earned her <laughs> idiosyncrasy. Exactly. 
and there's definitely a little bit of like a double standard there about you know what uh in in terms of accent i think a lot of times when you listen to uh to african-american singers of a certain generation in their interviews they they speak with a very uh a very pronounced accent in terms of being very proper and that I think is is definitely a relic of a time when you had to be overcompensating. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yeah, right. yeah. you had to be taken se- in order to be taken seriously. You had to yeah. be seen as without reproach. But also, she's lived in Europe for like more than her life, half of her life now. So her accent's gotten all weird with like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as accents do. Yeah. Jordan, did you? Did any of those uh, stri- strike you as interesting to talk about? Oh yeah, the um, I'd love to talk about that Agnaton. Oh uh, yeah, because I I know Anthony and um and. We were actually talking about it in the rehearsal room. Uh, he has been posting on Instagram videos of uh, sugaring, sugar waxing, because obviously Akhenaten, um doesn't have any hair on his body. Sure. <laughs> Why is that obvious? <laughs> I, I guess it's not. Right? You can't be you, a pharaoh and have hair on but your you, body. But you see Come the pictures, Oliver. right? And, yeah. and he's like totally <laughs> gone over his entire body with the sugar wax. And yeah. it's like a whole other level of commitment to okay. this role. Yeah. I mean, it's... Uh, so you're saying there's pictures on Instagram? <laughs> <laughs> on Tumblr? I, 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 I the whole picture. I knew it was going to be uh, uh, no. there. I, have to, I do have to say, if you look at the article, uh, the, the Guardian article does not contain any full nude uh, photos, so calm down, Oliver. But the production <laughs> does look really interesting, and I, I, I love Akhenaten. I think it's probably my favorite Philip Glass opera. Such a cool piece. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, it's really neat. And uh, is that on your list as a, as a countertenor? Do you want to do that one someday? Um, I've done the... The big duet between oh, sure, Akhenaten sure. and Nefertiti. Um, it's it's on my list. How it long seems did like it take you, you to memorize? You sort of have an Egyptian vibe going on. With, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I, I have the sugar wax to give me, though. <laughs> uh, moving, moving on from the sugar wax, the please. Nina, the Nina Stemma profile is so great. Yeah, and congratulations sh- to Hannah de Priest. Who this is funny. We have two articles uh, on our rundown this time. One which is written so well, and one which is written so badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, the, I love the the like. Uh, this is a thing that happens a lot in journalism, particularly with a journalist who doesn't necessarily know what what phrases are in relation to the arts or the voice, yeah. and they just kind of slap that that poor headline on that poor tenor. Uh, bass baritone. Uh, bass baritone. Yeah. I'm sorry, yeah, not tenor. Yeah. I'm surrounded yeah. by tenors in well, here. We could talk about both at the same time. So we do think you should go out and read the Nina Stemma. Absolutely. Interview. This should be required reading for all undergraduate voice students. And I, I love that she is using her platform as like the preeminent dramatic soprano of her generation to advocate for, you know, taking your time, being true to yourself, mm-hmm. listening to your, t- like taking your ment- taking care of your mental health, especially that one really stood out to me uh, as, you know, the performing world is pretty can be pretty unforgiving and to hear someone who is at the very top of it talk fr- honestly and frankly about um how she has found therapy to be absolutely central mm. to her ability to get up on stage and portray these characters uh is really refreshing and honest absolutely in, in this day and age yeah and the other article which is about actually a sort of a friend of ours eric mcconnell he went to northwestern and he did the fringe opera circuit or the storefront opera circuit here in Chicago before going on to Colorado. This is one of those cases of, uh, as you were saying, Wesson, you know, somebody who has like the arts 
journalism beat, you know, uh, in their town, but maybe don't know a thing <laughs> about the work that they're covering. Well, this is one of the problems because beats don't even exist anymore in journalism. They'll, they'll, they'll throw this story Tell at anybody. Tell that to Emma Jett. Uh, <laughs> at a classical beat. Yeah. Well, she's the only one left. <laughs> so, the, yeah, the headline is very unfortunate. And, like, it's really just an article about this local singer who's going to compete in the Met competition. And it could be profiling anybody, but it seems like they made it sound like this is like the one thing this guy's <laughs> <The> one thing. <laughs> I mean, obviously I'm biased because he is a good friend of mine, but I think he did a pretty good job of trying to come up with some quotes that uh, are meaningful to people who might be reading this and have never been to an opera in their life. And, yeah. and you know, and it, what comes across is the fact that it is incredibly detail-oriented work. Right. Uh, and I hope that you can take that away. You can still take that away without having a master's degree in, in the subject. Yeah. I think the most important uh, sort of thing on the rundown here is clearly the Sydney Opera House article. <laughs> I know it's difficult to talk about talk about in this audio only format, but you really got to check our website. It's it's delightful. My favorite, I think, there's this. It's a giant sort of uh, corkscrew, uh, ostensibly based on a seashell, but it looks like just like a wench gear, and it's just like big and brutalist, and it's got like a little hat that makes it look like a pizza hut. Oh, is that the one? It's that, amazing. That's the one that kind of looks like an old timey slide projector. Oh yeah. yeah. That, that's a yeah. good way to describe it. Uh, man, it, it's so funny because, you know, uh, as, a, as a person who's kind of raised on architecture and opera, I, I, I mean, the Sydney oh, Opera House is, yeah. is, is, is gorgeous. And it, it is, it's so iconic. It's the, only it's the only building everyone thinks of when they think Sydney, Australia. Um, and so to see some of these other designs is a very interesting what if. Uh, and we talked last week a little bit about the ugliness of the Bastille Opera House in France and how, you know achieving that level of iconicness is a little difficult to pull off um, and uh, I, I just loved it so much absolutely check our website apparently the Sydney Opera House has really awful acoustics though really? so maybe one yeah. of these might be, might be better who knows so, the, you know, the, in uh, retrospect. the corkscrew the, the <laughs> <laughs> so CSO might go on strike uh, yes. which I there's plenty of time for that story to develop. We have like two weeks before their deadline. But Probably management doesn't feel that way. Yeah, Two well, weeks goes by pretty fast. I know it's not strictly opera, but you know we have a lot of listeners in Chicago particularly. And no, Mooty does operas, concert operas there. Right, yeah. true. We're going to uh, get a great Aida later I'm on actually getting a little bit worried about seeing Bluebeard's Castle later on because that's like right in sort of strike zone, uh, as it were. And uh, especially given the fact that the Lyric uh, Orchestra of at um, uh, also went on strike a few few months ago and sort of derailed a uh, half of Lab OM. Uh, it's, I mean, it's pretty acrimonious strike, too. Absolutely. I would be really yeah. interested to see if, what, if any, lessons are learned for CSO from the uh, Lyric Opera strike. Let's hope they pull it out. So can't wait to take Toby to see the Luciano Pavarotti absolutely. biopic. Right I, absolutely. I read through this for the first time, and I thought it was going to be like an actual movie, like yeah. a like a, a movie made about well, his life. Ron Howard is a real director. And no, he, I mean, it's a documentary and yeah. not like right, a written right, movie. Right. And I was just hoping that I was finally going to get the chance to see Glenn Close playing Joan Sutherland. <laughs> <laughs> because if you look at pictures of the both of them when they were young, it is an uncanny resemblance. Huh. So and Glenn Coase can sing. She yeah. can't sing Coloratura, but she can. <laughs> no, but she got the jawline for it. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that we have such a high-profile director um, uh, attached to do it. Um, so I, I don't know. It could be pretty good. I, I like I like Opie. You know, I mean, I'll see it. That yeah. poor production of Otello. It's it's true. Actually, you, there's rarely two Otellos in a town, let alone in a country. <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> I just like I just love that the fact that just like uh, I guess I guess we cancel guys. Yeah. We don't have a backup plan for this. Yeah. I, I mean it, if you don't have a backup plan you don't have a backup plan. Ah oh, man. Well, 
on that note, it's time to cancel this show. We got to move on. <laughs> Good call. Bad call on Opera Box Score. That's right. It's time for a good call, bad call. And for my good call, I am going to give a sort of one final plug for uh, Jordan Rudder here, who will be playing uh, the uh, role of Doodle in the Scarlet Ibis. And that's on the 21st and 24th with Chicago Opera Theater. You can get your tickets, Chicago Opera Theater with an ER dot org. Uh, my good call is that, uh, or bad call, depending on your perspective, is that rumor has it that uh, the Metropolitan Opera season announcement should be a- dropping any day now. We so will be covering can't that. Can't wait to pick that apart. In the remaining few moments of this show, I want to acknowledge that Chicago Opera's Vanguard uh, initiative uh, had a really great outing this past weekend. Oh, with absolutely. The Life and Deaths of Alan Turing, an opera composed by Justine Chen with libretto by uh, what David, David Sim- Simpatico. Yeah. Yeah. And I was in the audience, and it was phenomenal. I loved it. I was brought to tears. Amazing by the, choral writing. By the opening scene, uh, or the love duet between uh, Christopher Morcom and Alan Turing. Baritone Jonathan Mitchie, who apparently has his career most in Germany, was phenomenal as Alan Turing. And Jonas Hacker, who was great in Fellow Travelers last year, uh, did it again. Really heartbreaking, beautiful tenor. The cast was great top to bottom, but those were really stand-up performances. Uh, so when it comes finally to full production, <laughs> you got to see it. In the meantime... We'll remind uh, you in this, a couple years. This weekend in Chicago, a really beautiful uh, mezzo-soprano named Lori Rubin, who's mostly known as a concert artist, but has sung uh, Cenerentola and Penelope and Return of Ulysses and uh, Elle in La Boite Women. Uh, she's a blind singer, and she went to Yale, and I heard her sing in a concert, and she's just got a really intriguing, beautiful voice, and she's going to be at Ravinia Festival, uh, their kind of off-season indoor uh, concert series, uh, singing recital on Saturday. A good time for all. Good, good week in opera going into the future towards the end of February here, and that is it. For this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera, the general manager at WNUR is John Williams. No, not that John Williams. Our announcer is Norm Woodell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. That's V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra with opera statistics and on-this-day content from operabase.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts. On Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review when you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts. The creative consultant for Oliver uh, for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Matt Cummings and our guest, Jordan Rudder, I'm Weston Williams, asking you to continue the conversation about opera at least through the end of February. I mean, I'm not asking much. It's the shortest month of the year. We're back on Monday, February 15th at 9 p.m. Central with more opera, more hot takes, and more sultry voice co-hosts. Join us then. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, Chicago's sound experiment.